Welcome to 5 Minutes to Chaos, the podcast that dives deep into the world of chaotic emergencies and complex crisis management. In each episode, we'll engage with emergency managers and crisis leaders to explore the challenges that arise in times of crisis and the strategies they employ to navigate through them. From natural disasters to technical failures to human-caused events, we'll examine real-life scenarios that put crisis managers to the test. Join us as we uncover the lessons learned from past emergencies and gain insight into the complexities of crisis management. With five minutes to chaos, you'll be better prepared to face the unexpected when it strikes. Let's dive in. I'm Steve Kerr, your host of uh, Five Minutes to Chaos. Uh, If you haven't uh, tuned in yet, Five Minutes to Chaos is uh, an unrehearsed, unscripted podcast with the goal of promoting crisis management through the raw experiences and observations of emergency managers and incident commanders that have led their team through critical situations. With us today is uh, uh, not only a colleague, but a friend in the emergency management business. But it's interesting uh, when you'll hear Jared Bernstein talk about his career, we've never worked together, but we have bumped into each other, so to speak, many times uh, along the way. Um, I was one of the uh, uh, on the leadership team of the New York City Office of Emergency Management. He succeeded me on the leadership team in OEM. So I'm just going to let uh, Jared talk about his career, and then uh, we'll talk about some critical events. I think you'll find this uh, particular episode very interesting. Jared, welcome. Thanks, Steve. Great to be with you. You know, I was thinking back to how I got into the emergency management business, and I'm going to tell you the story. Uh, on election day, the day of the primary election in 2001, uh, was September 11th, 2001. And I was working for Michael Bloomberg as a, a campaign intern. And I got the phone call from my brother who was at Canal and West and saw the impacts of the plane because he worked on Wall Street. And I actually yelled across the room to all who could hear me, everybody shut the F up and look at the TV because it was election day. So there was a lot going on. And we all watched powerlessly. Uh, for the next hours and days, what went on. And I swore to myself that if Mike got elected and I had an opportunity to work in city government, I was never going to feel like that again. I, and people said, well, you want to go to work at the police department? You want to go work at the fire department? And and they and they said, well, I said, what about this Office of Emergency Management? This sounds interesting. And they were everywhere, right? Uh, some of your colleagues and friends, you know, you were, you were in the mix there. Um, they were the tip of the spear, really trying to make order out of this chaos. And so when Mike won and I graduated from college, I was I was uh, honored and and fortunate enough to well, go work. Well, that doesn't in- make me feel too old. Right, right. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I was honored and privileged to go work as a junior spokesman uh, and through a series of battlefield promotions, ended up as a senior spokesman uh, after not too long uh, and, and was a senior spokesman for the Great Blackout of 2003 at OEM. And that was really where I cut my teeth on that one because everybody thought it was a terrorist attack. There was not a lot of information right. coming in, and we and, just and that to... came up recently on episode, uh, I believe it was episode one. Uh, Rich Rotan spoke about that. Rich, yeah, sure, sure, great friend, and and so for that was the 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 day where I had to figure out if I was going to be able to get comfortable in the chaos of not having all the pieces of information you need. Uh, or if I was going to go like hide in a closet somewhere. And so I, I cho- chose the former, 
Uh, I had some great mentors and Frank McCartan and Ed Schuyler, Cookie. Uh, who Cookie, Cookie, uh, who really sort of put me on a path to figuring it out and uh, served as the chief spokesman at OEM, had a lot of wild adventures there, um, ended up spending some time in City Hall working for Mike uh, in community relations. And when President Obama got elected, I was fortunate enough to get offered the job as the director of local affairs at the United States Department of Homeland Security, working for Secretary Napolitano, and later as the assistant secretary of intergovernmental, which which First, I was just in charge of mayors, and then I got put in charge of mayors and governors. And dealing with that relationship uh, between the department and mayors and governors, and later on, I spent time working for Bloomberg Philanthropies down in the Virgin Islands after the hurricanes of 2017. And now I do do some crisis management work uh, from a law firm of all places. But really, uh, you know, had this. Divert, but that makes you know, sense to me. That makes yeah. sense to me because as much as as much as the lawyers are not involved in the core. Of, of crisis management, uh, the legal system needs to be part of crisis management because sometimes critical decisions need to be made and sometimes you need a legal opinion on it. It's, it's just a reality of what we do. Yeah, and, and having a lawyer who gets it, right, who has oh, been absolutely. on the, the operational oh. side, and that's really where I, I work with a lot of our clients when you know, we have a partner uh, who's dealing with them on a matter and it goes sideways or it's not like sort of in their box of expertise, like, oh, let's bring Jared in on this one. Um, and it's, you know, it's all shapes and sizes. But, you know, when I was thinking about sort of an, uh, if we're an incident or a um, one of these disasters that I worked on that was sort of like not like the other, they're, they're all different. But the one that kind of had the most variables, I think, uh, was the Deepwater Horizon oil spill of, of 2010. And the reason it did is because most disasters in America, and you know this, Steve, but for, for those who don't, are governed by the Stafford Act, right? The Stafford Act is the enabling piece of legislation that talks about how we manage most disasters. If a local, And it basically says that if a local government is overwhelmed, it goes to the state, and the state government is overwhelmed, it goes to the federal government in, in the personification of FEMA under the National Response Plan, um, lots of other people involved. But FEMA is, is sort of the main clearinghouse for money and stuff. Um, but oil spills are not, right? Oil spills and, and any kind of chemical skill spills are not governed under the Stafford Act. But hold that point a minute, because yeah. I, I, I want to make a point of, of an incident more current. Yeah. I think you'll probably agree that this scenario, this uh, picture you're painting about uh, a policy, I'll call it a policy gap, if you will, uh, existed in the East Palestine uh, railroad accident because we had a chemical event, but we didn't have FEMA parachute in and assume a crisis management role. In fact, I think you'd probably agree that that under ESF 10, emergency support function 10 of the federal response, the national response framework that would have been probably EPA. So I, I just wanted to frame that for the, yeah. for, for the, for the audience. So uh, because it, it's something that they could probably get their arms around. Yeah. And, and in fact, the 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 Biden administration got really beat up over this. Right. Because they're they everybody's did. like, where's FEMA? Where's FEMA? Where's FEMA? And I'm tearing my hair out and say it's actually not FEMA's job. Now, we can talk about whether that's actually a gap and we ought to sort of legislate and figure out um, why that is. But. But the way is it was it's it's governed under something called OPA 90, which is the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, I believe. 
Um, and what it stipulates basically is that the polluter pays for the cleanup. So if you have if you have a hurricane or a tornado or a terrorist act, generally speaking, you know once a state or a local government has exhausted their funds, the federal government comes in and backstops them with public assistance and individual assistance and the, and the like. But in oil spills and and pollutant spills, generally the polluter pays. But that makes the response really complicated. Okay, so hang on that just a moment because mm-hmm. I've been in the business for four decades mm-hmm. and I've never heard of that. I assume that fell under Sarah Title III, Superfund Amendment Reauthorization Act, or uh, Circler, RICRA, some of those EPA or hazmat regulations. So what are the what are the emergency managers that are going to tune in and listen to this? What's a couple? What's a key takeaway about OPA? Oh, so OPA is that the polluter pays, right? And so you're effectively okay. business partners with the person who did the thing in the response, which is like kind of crazy, right? Because, you know, so I remember, you know, taking it to my example, when we did, uh, when we did Deepwater Horizon, we were in business with BP and the, and their contractors who they brought in to, to deal with the spill. Now I will tell you that in that scenario, you know, leaving aside to the fact that they caused this horrific oil spill as responders, they were phenomenal to deal with. BP, Be- yeah, BP. Doug Suttles, who was who was the guy in charge of BP at the time, they were no messing around. Okay, they- but ho- 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 so hold that thought for a minute. So now we have a railroad in Ohio, right, Norfolk yep. Southern, and now we have a, a British Petroleum BP, big global oil and gas conglomerate. They have an obligation to uh, fund the response and. and fund uh probably damage destruction and recovery but they don't have yeah. an have an obligation to take on a leadership role i i should let me put a question mark at the end of that so who, so who takes over the response so it's a, that's a great question right because uh the moral leadership is certainly has to be government that's what that's how our society is structured, right? You call 911, you don't expect the maker of the of the lithium ion battery to send you a fire truck. You expect the city of New York to send you a fire truck. Right. Great point. Uh, and, and and that's like that's like at its most basic level, that's how we are brought up. And so uh the answer is I'm not smart enough on the the specifics of whether the regulation says that, but I know in the case of BP, we were very cognizant of making sure that BP had a leadership role in the response because we were concerned that if they were not at the table, that they were going to end up trying to say, hey, we didn't, this is, you know, we're not paying because we weren't at the table. Um, and it it worked out insofar as that they were very lean forward, uh, very aggressive, maybe more aggressive than the federal government in in terms of like the the stuff and people. Because you know, one of the big fallacies in emergency management is that government has people just like sitting around waiting for really mega disasters to happen, right? We don't. We have a, a you know, budgets only dictate that you have just enough responsors for day-to-day operations and like a little bit of a cushion. So when a mega disaster like that happens, you know, you have to either cannibalize your day-to-day operations or hire private hire the private sector to come in and surge your resources. Uh, and so when we were dealing with Deepwater Horizon, we had to do both, right? We brought in a lot of private sector, uh, you know, oil spill um, containment people, right, who do this all over the world. We had to bring in resources from the Middle East and from from Texas and from from Alaska. Um, 
And the federal government, you know, in my little area of the world where I got started, which was dealing with mayors and local officials, you know, FEMA does this. It's in their DNA. They do it every single day on every single disaster. It's not baked into the DNA of the United States Coast Guard. That's not a bad thing. It's just not in their core mission set. It's right. You know, they are usually a bit offshore. They deal with local officials, but in a very tactical way. So like in New York being the perfect example, you know, the Coast Guard sector in New York deals with NYPD Harbor and FDNY Marine every day, but it just like it works. There's not like a, a, a tremendous reason for the captain of the port and the mayor of the city of New York to get on the phone once a week or once a day. When we were dealing with this oil spill, the issues were so local and so personal that you had, and, and particularly in Louisiana, where the parish presidents, which are like roughly equivalent to county executives in a lot of the other parts of the country, but they they have a tremendous amount of power under Louisiana uh, Napoleonic law, right? And so they have a tremendous amount- The only amount- state that operates under that That's structure. right. That's right. So they have a tremendous amount of, of power. Um, in fact, the mayor of New Orleans is also the president of Orleans Parish. Oh, didn't know that. Good. Yeah. So, so, so it's like- when you deal with parish presidents, they are they are like the end all be all, and you know it wasn't baked into the Coast Guard's DNA to to, to like do that. And so one of the things, uh, a lot of credit where credit is due to um, a colleague and friend, Juliet Kayim, who is the assistant secretary at that point, and uh, a woman by the name of Jane Lute, who was the deputy secretary of DHS at that time. We're like, we need to solve for this, and so we got together with Thad Allen, who was the national incident commander. He was a commandant of the Coast Guard, and then he retired. He had mandatory retirement in the middle of that oil spill. And President Obama gave him like, like a new title, National Incident Commander. And what we did is we got Coast Guard reservists, okay, who all worked in local government, and we assigned them each one to a parish president. So we had a guy, I remember, um, who was like a state trooper in New York for his day job. And we called him up on reserve and he was attached at the hip to the parish president of X parish. And every single day at the end of the day, at the end of the operational period, there was the regular brief out in the EOC. And then there was a call of all of our local liaison officers with me and the assistant secretary and the deputy secretary and say, okay, we know what the, we know what the operational period, we know what the incident action plan dictated for the, for that operational period, but what are the like political or comms realities that we're facing? Um, not that we were going to change the operational tempo based upon the politics, but sure wanted to be aware of what they were. And a lot of times the parish presidents, you know, they're the cl- closest level of government. So they may have uncovered issues that we didn't know about. So was um, this was were these liaisons brought in um uh, because there were so many parish presidents and there was a lack of unity and they their mission was to get everybody on the same page, bring them to the table and create some of that synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least even if we couldn't get them on the same page, at least know what they were all were pissed off about. And then we did a call once a week. I mean, in the beginning, it was like every day, but then it was like once a week was a battle rhythm where Julia Kayyem and and me and some folks from the EPA and the Coast Guard and the White House, we got on the call with all the affected governors. So it was uh, Haley Barber, Bobby Jindal, Rick Perry, right? People who were not tremendous friends of President Obama <laughs> at the time. Um, but we got on the phone with them and say, okay, like, 
no no bs like what what is what is really going on that you're seeing that we might not be seeing uh and we picked up some tidbits from them you know some of them were politics but a lot of them were they were the closest to their people and so you know and in the femis context that's baked in right but in but under the oil pollution act and under the coast guard scenario it's not baked in they were great at it and they were very um, once we got it up and running, it worked really well. Uh, I will tell you a funny story, you know, to tell you about parish presidents, the, the parish president of, of uh, Palakamins Parish, and I was corrected on my pronunciation many times, so I know how to say it. So how do you say it? Palakamins. Okay. Uh, his name was Billy Nungessa. And Billy, uh, he he was, I don't know if he still is, uh, he then went on to become the lieutenant governor of the state of Louisiana. And they used to say about Billy, the most dangerous place in the state of Louisiana was between Billy Nungasa and a TV camera. Oh, we all know people like that. That's right. That, we, have, we never worked with anybody like that in New York City, right, Steve? Uh, so so one time we were moving boom around. And boom is this, you know, stuff you use on the water to, to make sure oil doesn't spread or, or contain it. Containment and we, booms, yeah. Yeah, containment booms. And then we would do like some controlled burns and, and all this crazy stuff. But one time we were moving a truck full of boom from one parish to another parish. And I think it was Palakamins. Um, uh, my memory could be failing me, but... And I get a call from one of my colleagues who is who is downrange, and he says, uh, "Jared, we got a little bit of a problem." And I said, "What's going on, Drew?" And he says, um, "Hey, man, uh, so the sheriff's here." And I said, "Oh, great! You know, you're going to get an escort." And he's, "No, sheriff's not letting the truck move out of this parish with the boom." And I said, "What?" He says, "Yeah, you know the the." The, the parish president doesn't think that the boom should leave. And I said, well, yeah, well, you know, we have aerial recon that says, you know, the, the oil's moving this way and the weather station and this, that, and the other. Yeah, parish president doesn't care. And I said, well, okay, well, just drive. He said, no, no, no. The, the sheriff says he's going to lock us up if we move the boom to another parish. And I said, okay. So we ended up having to get a federal marshal to go down there and defuse this standoff. And thankfully, cooler heads prevailed. Um, but these issues, and Steve, you've you've been on a hundred of these. When your community is threatened and you feel like government, particularly the federal government, is ignoring you, like I don't blame the parish president for impounding that boom because what he saw was oil in his parish. And and so, you know, we had to do a better job of like letting these parish presidents know, like we okay, we had a plan, right? We had a, a ten thousand foot plan. And if we're moving par if we're moving boom one day versus another day, it's for a reason, not because we don't like your parish or because of politics or whatever else. So it was an education for me uh, in the region um, because you know I was one of these New Yorkers who thought the you know that there was like there was like the city, then there was New Jersey, and then there was America, and then there was California. <laughs> and 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 you know working at DHS for Secretary Napolitano, going to flood floods in Fargo, North Dakota, going to the you know spent a lot of time in the oil spill, um, seeing the country and how different places do disasters, you know was was incredible and an education for me and made me more sort of appreciative and tolerant of the rest of the country. You know, as, as much as we have standards through NIMS and ICS and FEMA processes, things are different, and I think that's okay. The diversity of uh, emergency management, crisis leadership, styles, uh, local, state laws, uh, I think makes what, what we do interesting. And it, it also 
leaves us with lessons that we can draw upon from how other jurisdictions do business that because there's just always a, a bit of a better mousetrap so i'm 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 trying to get a picture jared about what the organizational structure looks like here because we have bp as the principal mm -hmm. uh organization responsible for the hazard and participating as a partner and yeah. we don't have fema but you're talking about an eoc so what does the structure look like? How is it unified? Was there 10 years ago, 12 years ago, were there any technologies that you were able to use to foster and promote collaboration? Like like I mean, today, I, there would be WebEOC and, yeah. and, and, and Zoom, you know? Yeah, we just, so we did a lot of, uh, so we did run an EOC with ESF functions, right? Even though, and so that- and where was the EOC? Was this so in... there was one, uh, the BP, BP had a big response center in Houma, Louisiana. Okay. Uh, which was, uh, which is, uh, a, you know, a good amount of distance from anywhere. Um, and then the Coast Guard also stood up a command center in New Orleans because it was sort of the center of gravity. Uh, and then the states did end up spinning up the, their EOCs. So it was, um, so it was Louisiana, Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, uh, Florida and Texas doing it in sort of a more limited way, but really Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Um, and there was a lot of collaboration on web EOC that did exist or, or, you know, whatever its predecessor was. I mean, it could have been E-Team. Uh, was was a piece of software. Uh, a lot of conference calls. A lot of conference. It was death by conference call. Um, sometimes it was like, oh, we have a conference. And then you had to like, if you were going on a conference call with the secretary and the governors, right? Well, you had to have a conference call to prep for that conference call That's because yeah. you know you, you can't be a bet. You can't let your your boss walk into a room and and not know what the problem is going to be. And then and then the secretary uh, had you know she had uh, Admiral Allen who was uh was the national incident commander um and then he had a he had a general staff so so you know he was briefing the president regularly he was briefing secretary napolitano regularly so that was going on um so there's a lot of conference calls and a lot of you know things that like this local official liaison program didn't really fit neatly into the the EOC ESF bucket. And because it was reservist, there was like a little bit of a cultural thing within the Coast Guard. Yeah, but that's okay because you were, you had a problem that needed yeah. a solution and you Absolutely. got creative. The emergency management infrastructure in the United States, Jared, and I think you'll agree with this, is, is not, you know, carved in granite. It's supposed to be nimble if we are not as emergency managers adaptable to a crisis then we're not going to be able to right. achieve success and, and and solve solutions you know i'm i'm listening to the number of eocs and command centers that were stood up and i would expect that and i'm, I'm yeah. glad you spoke about that and now um i if we can just tighten up a little bit about how the collaboration went because this would also apply not only to government structure, but it would apply to the corporate world. So if you have a corporation that has facilities around a region, multiple states, even global, so how do governments coordinate among multiple command centers? How would, in your mind, a multinational or a multi-state corporation in the U.S. coordinate? What is the 
what is needed conference calls absolutely and i've had uh, experience with that in any number of jobs i was on uh when i was a emergency manager for the utility in colorado we would have you know heavy winter weather events national weather service conference calls regional conference calls with the regional emergency managers uh you'll probably recall the new york city heat plan conference calls every morning eight o'clock uh, 50 agencies talking about how we're going to respond to a heat event. So that's absolutely essential. But was there a coordinating element? So how would how would governments coordinate these multiple yeah. uh, command cells? How would a corporation coordinate with their multiple facilities? Yeah. So that's that's a great question, Steve. I just want to back up a half a second about Please. about the about the. Um, flexibility and 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 being creative you know we always used to joke that the unofficial motto of uh of fema should be semper gumby right yeah. right right because gumby was that that, car that cartoon yeah. character was super flexible yeah and semper, when i was a kid you know, right I'm old. so uh, the gumby was on when i was a kid too so okay. uh, instead of you know semper fidatis or yeah. you know always ready always faithful it should be always flexible right yeah. um and that should be what we are doing i would say you know the a knowing what what the universe knowing what the universe is uh of knowing what the universe is of centers um and kind of like you know figuring out a battle rhythm that is effective but not onerous right because if you spend all your time on conference call briefing people you never actually do anything to address the problems that come up and so that is uh something that was you know a challenge um and then the other thing I would throw in there that was a key takeaway, and I know you like to ask your, your guests this, uh, you know, we always, I would say are like, we were so caught up in the crisis and it went on for about 90 days, right? Uh, we expected like in our gut, every day we expected it to be over the next day. Maybe we didn't intellectually expect it to be over the next day, but like, we're like, oh, we could just get through this op, op period. Like things are going to get better. And it went on for a long time. And one of the big lessons learned I have that I think for corporations and for government is, and it's really, really hard, is if you have something big, go boom, literally or figuratively, you got to take two of your really good people and you got to lock them in a room and say, start planning for 30 days out. Stop plan start planning for 60 days out. Be and 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 that means staffing, that means money, that means stuff, that means human capital, right? That is something that if I were to say the biggest lesson learned uh from that spill is how do you have that discipline to take away some of your good people early on in an operation? Like, could you ima imagine if on uh on September eleventh? Richie Shearer had said to John Odomat, go home, John, and start thinking about what we're going to do in 20 days from now. Right. Like, or, or, or you know, uh, or Henry Jackson or like any of these legends who, who we all worked with, right. like you're, you're in the fight. It's really hard to do because like the thing is really messed up. You're dealing with a really bad situation, but I teach, I, I talk to people about this all the time. You are doing such a service to your team and to the public or your, to your stakeholders. If you could take a couple of those people aside, send them in a different place and start thinking about the medium term uh, effects or needs of a response like this. And it's, it, I can't say it enough. Absolutely love that. Um, I have uh, worked in organizations where we got a little inventive with that uh, problem and, 
using uh, an ICS structure for a corporate crisis management team. In our planning section, we had uh, what we called immediate plans and yep. and and, uh, uh, and future and future plans. Right, the military yep. does this. Yeah, and that's where and that's where we drew it from. Uh, so we had future planning, uh, immediate planning, and future planning. Immediate planning was married to the operations section because they were literally doing planning for the next operational period. And then future planning is looking at that medium and long term. So absolutely just a right. couple of nuggets that we can. Offer yeah. And, and but I would say the the military does as well. Emergency managers, this is not, I mean, yeah. it's, it's getting better, but it's not something like, I mean, when I was taught ICS, there was the planning section, like Sababa, like, and, and, and move on. But I think you're right. It's starting to uh, penetrate the, the discipline. And, and a pure ICS structure, the planning session, uh, section is not what we're describing. It's a situational uh, awareness group. It is more more immediate term planning, developing an IEP for the for the next operational right. period. I would encourage emergency managers, crisis managers, business continuity professionals to look at that. Whatever your structure is, whether you use ICS or not, to look at that and have what you suggested. And that was a really great point. Uh, both uh, planning for the for the for the near term, meaning like now in the next uh, sixteen hours, and then your your medium to long term planning. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. But uh, so I, I, you know, there have definitely been uh, you know, a number of other great adventures, but I don't want to bore you with all that. Uh, but but I, you know, I think that was a, an interesting one because it was a um a different sort of. Uh, regulatory uh, and, and excuse the emergency management pooch in the background, but it was a uh, it was a a unique regulatory environment that uh, that that uh, you know brought us to governing how we were we did and wasn't like all the other stuff we did. Yeah, it wouldn't have been. And I, I'm 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 venturing a guess that when when the when the when the cloud dissipates or the dust settles trying to be smirky there uh, in in East Palestine, we will yep. find some of the same issues. Yeah. Not, a, not a waterway per se, but uh, still ESF 10, you know, the national response plan, I believe in after action reports, uh, we'll see similar problems that, that might have, that might exist. I, I agree. I agree. I, I, I know you like to ask your guests about podcasts and books. I have a couple of recommendations. Go for it. Okay. So first of all, for podcasts, I'm going to shamelessly plug, plug. I have a podcast that is not emergency management related, but I host a, I co-host a podcast for a publication called Jewish Insider. And I'm a, uh, no surprise. I am a Democrat and a Demo I was a democratic political appointee. And I actually co-host it with a guy who worked for Donald Trump, um, named Rich Goldberg, who is a veteran and a patriot. And he's wrong about most things. I love the balance. But, yeah. Yeah. And so we try and have a civilized conversation in a, uh, in a time period that is often uh, not so balanced. And in terms of books, I, I had a really, uh, I was thinking about this because I, I, I listen to the podcast and I love when you ask folks this. My my dear friend and colleague, Juliet Kayam, who was the assistant secretary uh, before me at DHS, um, who was the, the national security, um, the Homeland Security Advisor to Governor Patrick up in Massachusetts. And she's a commentator on CNN. She wrote a book she wrote two books. Well, the first one's called Security Mom, which is interesting because it's about being a parent in the age of terrorism and disasters. And it's a really personal book, which I loved. And and for for all of us who are in this business, but are also parents, it's, it's really thoughtful. Um, the other one is a book called The Devil Never Sleeps. 
And the reason I love this book that Juliet wrote is that it kind of, it, it examines this idea that we, we are never going to be um, out of a, the threat environment we're out in our memory or in our, in our lives. Right. So it is, how do we get okay with where we're at now um, while still taking the proper precautions and, and maybe shifting the paradigm and how we think about these events uh, about they are going to happen. Um, and so how do we build, I know resilience is sort of a buzzword that, that gets overused a lot these days. Um, but, but how do we like build um, character resilience, particularly, uh, you know, as parents, but as emergency managers and as folks who pay attention to this stuff, how do we get okay with the fact that the world is a really crazy place right now and bad things are going to happen? Like, how do we get, how do we shift our thinking uh, about that? And I think it's a phenomenal read and Juliet's a phenomenal person. She's on CNN all the time. Um, you know, commentating on the issues of the day, but yeah. those are two, two recommendations. Excellent. Uh, and you know, I, I urge, urge the listeners to, to do that. I've seen her appear on, uh, uh, on, on, uh, news, uh, TV programs as well as on, uh, uh, satellite radio. So I'm, and I'm connected with her on, uh, uh, a number of different social media platforms. Um, you know, I like what you're saying because I've often given thought about how the threat landscape has changed over the past, uh, let's just say, 25 years since I was in New York City OEM and then state OEM and then, uh, uh, you know, private sector consulting for some, you know, very, uh, you know, visible government agencies and then out in Colorado working for utility. And the 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 natural hazard threat has um, is a bit more extreme most likely climate driven uh if wildfires are hotter and burn faster hurricanes flood events that kind of thing the human threat the human made threat is is one that that's that's frightening and that has grown systematically over the course of the last three decades um so uh, i i appreciate you know the the term perma crisis comes up these days yep we are in yep. a permanent crisis and and that's and that's something that we have to uh, not only acknowledge as emergency managers, but also the communities need to recognize that stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, I remember, uh, and you know, former colleague of yours, uh, mentor of mine, uh, getting kind of sat down by Calvin Drayton, uh, legendary first deputy commissioner at New York City OEM, and and sort of giving me the talk about getting okay with the unknown and getting okay with these crisis situations. Uh, and, you know, I think Juliet's book is a call to arms, uh, you know, and, and as emergency managers, the people in our lives are going to look to us, even when it's not an emergency in our, in our world. I remember in the early days of COVID, my phone was burning up and I, you know, I was at Bloomberg, I was doing, you know, I was on their COVID team, but I wasn't in government. And I'm sure Steve, you, you were getting the same kinds of calls from people in your life. Like, what, what do I do? How do I take like, and so you know, it's important that even if it's not a crisis in our jurisdiction or in our world, that we be ready to kind of give that advice to people who are going to look to us as leaders in the field about what to do. Well, wow, what a great conversation. Uh, a couple takeaways I jotted down uh, was uh, maybe gap is not the best word, but uh, 
a little tightening up of crisis management at the federal level simply because the legislation and federal policy doesn't really allow for or well it probably does allow for uh, effective crisis management but we have agencies that may not be just good at that multi-agency coordination that emergency managers are you know the right. coast I mean, they guard just, they, they, right they just don't do it all the time so they don't like, do it why, all the time. why would yeah. you get good yeah. at it you know if if you know, but yeah, so that's one. Abs and I, right. Absolutely yeah, I think not taking a shot at anybody. Right, right. When I, when I consulted for the Port Authority in New York, New Jersey, we worked very closely with the Coast Guard. Coast Guard promotes and is very, very uh, engaged with the incident command system. Yeah. That yeah in fact, right. It doesn't, it doesn't, but it's just not what they do every day. In fact, right. Linda Fagan, who is the Tom down of the Coast Guard now was uh, posted. She was the captain of the Port of New York. Um, when I was oh, with the city, okay. so she, she knows, she knows this issue backwards and forwards, but you know, it's not like when you're on a cutter for six months out and, you know, interdicting drug Lords in the Caribbean, like you're right. not doing this on a regular basis. No interagency operations involving a big private sector organization, like, yep. like, like a BP, you know, is certainly, yeah. is certainly different. Uh, encouraging emergency managers, listeners to the podcast to become a little more familiar with the Oil Pollution Act. Was it OPA 90? Yeah, OPA, OPA 90. It OPA. may have been amended since, but OPA 90 was governing it when we were dealing with it in 2010. Yep. Okay. Uh, British Petroleum, BP did have a seat at the table and as yeah. such uh, was part of, I'll just say for the, for the discussion was part of the unified command and not only uh, was part of the leadership, but they had a bona fide legitimate seat at the table that quite frankly, they didn't, they paid for literally paid for, but they also had an obligation to, and it sounded like they stepped up for that. Yeah. So uh I think uh, and the other takeaway was the, the liaison officers that were assigned, you know, just anything necessary, any creative in uh, using ingenuity uh, way to get people on the same page, to draw people into the common operating picture yep. is, is what we have to do. And and it sounded like you did some some creative work there. And just uh, the conference calls, many, many different command cells, many different emergency operation centers, and just de developing the common message, the common operating picture, because it, it's, it's, it may sound like, um, you know, rocket science to, to some, to, to people like us, it's not, but it still has to get done. And right. I, I appreciate everything uh, that you were able, able to convey today. Oh, thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, great, great. Great episode. I want to thank Jared for joining Five Minutes to Chaos and for sharing uh, his experience in crisis management, in particular uh, at the federal level. Five Minutes to Chaos drops weekly on Thursdays. Please follow us or like us on your favorite platform uh, and set it to alert so you'll know when uh, an episode drops. I welcome your comments, your questions. Uh, they can be submitted uh, in the uh, show. Uh, on your on your platform or find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and send me a note. And until next time, embrace the chaos. Indeed. Thanks, Steve. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Five Minutes to Chaos. We hope you enjoyed exploring the many facets of the incident we discussed today and gained some new insights and perspectives along the way. Remember, confronting chaos is not something to be feared or avoided. It is a central crisis management role that we can learn to embrace and navigate with robust leadership and personal resilience. 
By embracing chaos, we can tap into our creative potential, adapt to situations more easily, and find a way to overcome the challenges of complex emergencies. I'd like to thank our guests and experts who shared their insights with us today, and to our listeners, thank you for joining us. We hope you found value in today's episode and invite you to continue exploring the many aspects of complex crisis management. Don't forget to subscribe to 5 Minutes to Chaos for more thought-provoking conversations and insights. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review or sharing it with a friend and colleague. Until next time, embrace the chaos. Thank you.